Welcome to Rolling Valley Stories. This is a podcast that is designed for us to get to know each other as members of the ward. Today I'm excited because we have Laura Gunn with us and I'm super excited to learn more about her and about her life and things that she's done and experiences that she's had. And so Laura, thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you for sharing your experiences and sitting down with us. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. I know sometimes talking on a podcast can can be a little bit nervous, but I appreciate you being here and I appreciate you sharing your stories and experiences with us because really it's about learning from each other and getting to know each other. So thank you very much for, for sitting down with us. Thanks. Okay, well, let's get started. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born and raised? What was your childhood like? I was born in San Francisco Bay Area and raised there. I lived in the same house until I was 19 years old. I am the second youngest of eight children of so a large family. Mm. And my mother is an artist, and my father, who is no longer alive, was a musician. And so my house was very loud, and it was very visually very stimulating. There was hot pink and turquoise and lime green walls, um, knickknacks and handmade dolls everywhere, my mom's art, and music going all the time. Uh, When I was younger, my dad was a band teacher, but I don't really remember that. What I do remember is music lessons constantly going in our house and there was a piano that that backed up against my bed, the wall that, you know, I shared a wall with the piano and my oldest brother is like a concert pianist. So I would just, (laughs) (laughs) he was constantly practicing. So it was very noisy and chaotic, chaotic in a lot of good ways. I had a lot of fun with my siblings, but chaotic in some really difficult ways as well. So it was a mixed bag for sure. So you said your mom, your mother was an artist. Was she Mm -hmm. a a painter? Did she do? So my mom actually makes these crazy cloth dolls mainly. And she, at a certain point, my dad was never able to really provide in a steady way. So she started traveling and teaching doll making. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And she would dress like her dolls and she would make these crazy outfits with dolls hanging all (laughs) over her outfits. And she had hot pink hair before everybody's grandma had hot pink hair. You know, this was back in the day when nobody had hot pink hair. And, And she was a big woman, tall and heavy and had a very deep voice. It was always fun to have her show up at band fundraisers and such. You know, she was quite a presence. So if your mom was gone a lot trying to sell these dolls, was your dad the primary caretaker of the kids? I mean, technically he was, but he was very absent and honestly mm-hmm. not a really a safe person. So my siblings and I sort of raised each other mm-hmm. and luckily I had great siblings. They weren't the best parents though. They were <laughs> sometimes dangerous, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun and we were scrappy and came up with a lot of creative ways to get good food. I mean, it was never, it weren't like we were starving, but there wasn't like kid food around and there weren't people cooking for us. So we'd do a lot of funny things like frying Cheerios or mustard on a saltine cracker, you know, just trying to get some kind of umami experience, you know, but we managed. Because of that experience, is there a certain sibling that you connect with more? Do you have Absolutely, a pretty good, what's your yeah. relationship like with your siblings? I mean, my, my sister, Evie, who actually lives here, she's 11 years older than me, and she, you know, changed my diapers and took care of all of us. She really was kind of like the, the mother figure in our home. Also, the brother and sister just older than me, Isaac and Maureen, they, they were there. They were around. I mean, Evie moved out by the time I was seven, 
So then I was left to Mo and Isaac, and, and they were a little bit crazy, but Maureen was always convinced there were ghosts living in our attic, and you know, <laughs> there's a lot of crazy stuff. You know, when you have little kids just raising each other, it gets a little bit a so besides, So besides mustard on saltine crackers, mm-hmm. what is the craziest experience you had growing up that you can remember? Well, almost every really crazy experience I had as a child is going to involve my brother Isaac who was just always up to some shenanigan. And he would do things like, we were out working in the yard once, and unbeknownst to us, he was gathering earthworms as we were weeding. And then at a certain point, just for kicks, he stuffed his mouth full of earthworms and chased me and my sister around the yard. (laughs) And that's the kind of stuff he would just do all the time. And, you know, he was always blowing stuff up. And I remember once, my parents were out of town we were home unsupervised for a few days and they forgot to leave us money for groceries Mm -hmm. but my dad was a prolific change collector so isaac saved the day and we took all of my dad's change it was years years of change and went to you know one of those machines you dump in it and dumped it all in there and isaac's like what do you want for dinner and you know i think we got (laughs) steak so we we managed you know so it sounds like your brothers and sisters did a lot of raising you. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your mom and dad then. Is that if your mom was on the road a lot and your dad wasn't necessarily there, tell me about your relationship with well, your mom and dad. Well, it was very confusing. There was a lot of neglect and some abuse in our home. And it was confusing because, you know, it was my parents who taught me the gospel first. But my dad in particular was not living the gospel. So there was a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of pretend and so it was very complicated. And, you know, there, there came a time when I had to, when I was very young, and I had to understand that you can forgive people without trusting people, and that someone can do good and bad at the same time. A lot of things that are very complicated and um, nuanced for a kid. But those are pretty powerful life lessons, so. Growing up in that scenario, how do you think that affected you mentally as an adult now? Do you think that had an effect, that has an effect on you, or were you of able course. to overcome that? Of course. It will always have an effect on me. Your identity is just so wrapped up with your parents. I just don't think there's any way to ever get past that. But I can see now a lot of good that came for me from that. My husband also had kind of a different upbringing, but similar in that his parents also weren't really able to parent fully. And so we just didn't have a lot of mentorship. We had to figure it out on our own, except that we had amazing friends and my siblings. So we had some great mentors in that, but we had to kind of find our own. But we just became stronger because of that. I think it really, I mean, there's an independence there that we forged together that I'm pretty proud of. So, I'm sure you're not the only one that has grown up. As a matter of fact, we've interviewed people on this podcast that individuals that grew up in under somewhat similar circumstances. If you were to talk to somebody who's going through that now, maybe one of the youth in the world that's going through that now, what, what recommendations would you give to them? Well, I think first what I would say to leaders first before I'd say anything to them. I think one of the things that was hard for me growing up was people say a lot of things at church 
they have a lot of assumptions. I think it's hard to imagine that there are people that you're going to church with who maybe aren't the best parents, who maybe have like a darker side. Nobody wants to really believe that. And so people make a lot of assumptions and say a lot of things about your mother and father love you, do what your mother and father say, like all these things. And when your mother and father aren't keeping their covenants or really they're not setting a good example for you, then that can be confusing and difficult. So when I teach youth, I try to always be really respectful of the fact that they have their own real challenges. And I think that's important to just acknowledge that some of them are suffering and not every you know, you hate to think that I mean, we have the most amazing warden, but in every ward, I think there are children who are having a really hard time at home. And so just being careful about the things that we say that are inclusive and don't make them feel they're somehow responsible or yeah. that there's any shame in that. And what I would say to those kids is just that life gets so much better. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. You're good. Yeah. So I, just that it just gets so much better. And that... Sorry, that's hard. <laughs> um, there's... There's a powerlessness that comes with childhood. And when the people who are supposed to protect you don't then it can be very scary but you're not always going to be powerless so I guess that's what I would say well I'm really sorry that you know you went through that experience uh, but I think your, your comments are are really important for us to all recognize that maybe not everybody in our ward or in our stake has the, the, the family life that we think they have. Uh, and so I think you make a very, very good point about recognizing that and making sure that we're inclusive and, and watching for those things. Well, I'll tell you, being Relief Society president, what I've learned is that probably no one has yeah. the kind of life you think they do. And that there are hidden sorrows in everyone's life. So, absolutely. It's very true. Yeah. Well, growing up in that kind of family environment and without that experience from your parents to help you grow your testimony, how did you gain your testimony? Well, my parents took me to church every week. They took us to church every week and we participated and we even had like family prayer and, you know, a lot of it was smoke and mirrors, but it was good because I met a lot of great people that way and I learned to pray from a very young age and I talked to God about everything. And that intimacy with him is really what got me through everything. I never once doubted that he loved me. And, and I had experiences of praying and getting guidance and answers. And from the time I was very small, in fact, it was kind of a family joke that if something was lost, have Laura pray about it because <laughs> I would find it. It doesn't work for me anymore. I think at a certain point, God was like, you need to stop leaving your stuff everywhere and just, you know, you're on your own now. But for a long time, I was the world's best prayer finder. And also, I loved keeping the commandments. I just did. That for me was such a solid, predictable force in my life. 
I was drinking a Diet Coke on the way here, but when I was a kid, I wouldn't touch that stuff. <laughs> if anybody said, don't do that, I didn't do it, you know? <laughs> to a fault, I've had to learn over the years to kind of be a little more flexible, but at that time, it was great. It was really good for me. It sounds like it's almost as if, because you had so much instability in your family, that the stability of the commandments in the, in the church gave you that kind of secure feeling that you needed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It was great. So can you think of a specific moment where you knew you had a testimony then? Well, I was thinking about, um, it was very young for me. I was remembering my baptism and I was baptized with two other little girls that day. And I just remember afterwards having just, just having tears in my eyes after my confirmation and the other girls like, why are you crying? And, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't understand what's happening. And then I later realized that I had been feeling the spirit, but I had a lot of just really sweet, quiet experiences in prayer and very personal, quiet moments that just grew my testimony. So it was gradual for me. It wasn't like a one single incident, but there were definitely big experiences for specific doctrine. You know, like I remember on my mission, really struggling with my testimony of Joseph Smith, and my sister sent me this great quote from him about how he wasn't perfect, and it kind of helped me get over some things and go preach. So, yeah, just a lot of little things. When did you leave the house then, and what did you go do? So I went to BYU um, when I was 19, and then I went on a mission as 21, as you used to have to wait till you're 21, and served in Ohio. And my mission was a great experience for me. It was, my dad had kind of a weird mix of, <laughs> like, I don't know, like uh, spiritualism and Mormonism. So there was some weird stuff that he had taught us. And a mission was good for me to kind of like <laughs> figure out like what was doctrine, what wasn't doctrine. And then also, one of the best things for me as a missionary was my mission leaders, my mission president and his wife, President Sister Johnson. I just loved them. I served in the mission home quite a bit. And Sister Johnson was actually going through cancer treatment when she stayed in the mission. But because of that, my companion and I were helping a lot with her responsibilities. And so I spent a lot of time in their home. And that was really, really important to me because it was just sort of a window and I had a lot of experiences like that. There were members of the church too growing up who were just like these happy, healthy families. And those just gave me some understanding of what was possible. And President and Sister John's were really important for me that way. What do you think one of the biggest lessons you learned from their example that you have taken into your family now then? I think the love that I felt from President Johnson I think was what was so meaningful to me, that he was such a good man and he radiated goodness. And just knowing that that was possible was really important. Yeah, I can see how hearing what happened to you growing up and then seeing that experience from a mission president who's obviously very spiritual, very close to the Lord, you know, is working uh, with the Spirit and seeing that on a day-to-day -day basis and seeing that in a home, that must have been a very drastic change. Uh, I can see how that would be very impactful to you. Yeah, it was. So you went to Ohio on your mission. After your mission, did you go back to school? I came back to BYU, and a few weeks later I met Dave, and a few weeks later we got married. <laughs> it was very fast. 
two weeks after you got <laughs> no, home? It wasn't quite two weeks. It was 14 weeks from when we met to when we married. And I think I was home, I don't know, maybe a month and a half or something. So tell us that story then. Okay. Well, we met at a party at the Blue House by the Brick Oven Pizza Place, you know, in Provo. And I, it was my first party after getting home from a mission and, and there was a couple of bands playing and we both knew kids in the bands and I was completely, I was just so excited to be there and I was dancing. There was the only person dancing, which I don't usually <laughs> do. And Dave just thought that I seemed pretty upbeat and chipper and I was. So we you know went for a walk and then he asked me out and then he stood me up. But he says he thought it was a different night and I really do think he was incredibly nervous. He didn't actually talk for the first four weeks and since we got married a few weeks later, that seems amazing. But uh, he was really nervous around me, but I didn't care because he laughed at all my jokes. And so we were just really into each other. Or I was really into him being into me because he really literally said nothing for like, <laughs> it probably was two or three weeks where we really started talking. In fact, we were at an, another party and we had a mutual friend and he was just chatting it up with her. And I was like, okay, I see what's happening. Like, you know, kind of put me at ease, like that he just was really nervous around me. And so both of us just, we were so happy to be together. We really were. And so how many dates and then how many weeks before he proposed? It was six weeks of dating and eight weeks of engagement. And he asked me to marry him in front of the Provo Temple. And So when did you know that he was the one then? I mean, you know, there was only six weeks there, of course, <laughs> yeah, so maybe five weeks, I don't know, it took a little while. You know, it just felt different than anything, you know, a guy I dated before and... And the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> so I mentioned my parents were a little crazy. Yeah. So we lived on a really busy street like rolling road kind of busy or maybe like huntsman and my two older sisters their wedding my mom had you know she kind of decided how it was going to be and she threw their weddings in the front yard because our backyard was just a total wreck okay and it's california so she got a tent in the front and did this big wedding in the front yard and dave who always just had better boundaries about things he was like yeah we're definitely not having a wedding in the front yard <laughs> so we ended up my young ones present had a beautiful backyard garden so we did that instead and that was that was great so even from the beginning it was good because he and I just we forged our own way we were assertive about it kind of made our own life and it did hurt my mom's feelings because she felt really good about her front yard weddings but <laughs> we didn't do it we didn't we did our own thing <laughs> my mom made a special coat for each wedding and it would have I mean really you just need to Google everybody just Google Eleanor Peace Bailey you're, there's no description that I'm gonna give that is gonna do it justice you will not believe it okay and if you can find like she used to do a lot of ads for Bernina sewing machines and so if you can find her Bernina ads they're fantastic and I just want you to understand the giant red top hat the dolls hanging off the clothing, that is how she dressed. She went to church like that. At one point, someone asked her not to wear the hat in the temple. And so that was her concession, is she wouldn't wear a top hat to the temple. But other than that, so for, for my wedding, she made this wild garment. And I had never met Dave's parents because it was such a fast, crazy thing. So they came down, they're seeing my parents for the first time. 
it was awkward. <laughs> There's definitely some red flags for sure. It's too late. We did what we wanted. Sounds like an amazing wedding though. I mean, it was. It was a beautiful wedding. It was great. And considering the budget and the time constraints, we did a great job. So after the wedding, you, know, you went back to BYU? Yeah, we went back to BYU. I had a little longer than he had, so he kind of, we ended up walking at the same time. He worked more so I could catch up with him. Yeah, and then we did an internship together. We actually, this was really cool. We ended up going to the Gilbert Islands, Kitty Bus, and helping to translate the Book of Mormon. Really? Yeah, Dave's a linguist, so we were able to do that, and it was pretty cool, but also terrifying experience. We joke now that when we're ready to, to die, we will go do a mission in Kitty Boss, and then for sure that'll kill us off, and then we'll go straight to the Celestial Kingdom. So that's our exit plan, we'll go together. So you were translating the Book of Mormon into what language? We were just helping the translators, so more like helping with the consistency. So um, it was a really interesting experience. They basically had, I don't know, six different translators or something, four different, I can't remember how many. But they were all translating different sections of the Book of Mormon, and there was a lot of inconsistencies because there's terms that when you're translating into another language, like there may not be a term for Antichrist. And Antichrist was a great example because they were actually, they didn't translate, they just left it as Antichrist, which would actually mean something totally different because the word A-N-T-I means something in the language. So it was really complicated. So Dave was good at kind of helping them come up with like a lexicon. He totally said, don't talk about me on this thing. <laughs> I'm talking about it. So what did you study at BYU? Anthropology. Anthropology. Yeah, which is so useful in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and for those that don't know, anthropology is what? Uh, it's the study of cultures and peoples around the world. Yeah. And I'm now an artist. So those, Really? Yeah. Do you paint? Do yeah, you I do. Poetry? I paint. Oh. I do large abstract landscapes mainly is what oh, I do. Okay. Yeah. And you sell them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. It's it's a part-time gig because full-time gig is raising my yeah. children. So, And what brought you guys to the D.C. area? Dave's job. And how long have you been here in the area? We have been in the Virginia area for 11 years, I think. Yeah, we came out here for grad school. I had a grant to go to Georgetown, did that, and then we decided to stay. Has your whole time been in this ward? Mm -mm. I lived in McLean for a year and a half, or it was Falls Church, McLean Ward for a year and a half, and then we were in the Springfield Ward until boundaries changed. So looking back at your, at your time since graduating from college, what experiences have you had that have helped grow your testimony? Well, I was thinking about how my testimony has developed as an adult, and one of the best things to happen in my life is to find a partner who is sort of equally yoked in a desire to create a new legacy and do things differently than our parents did things. So that focus on creating a new legacy has been a big part of my personal testimony and spiritual growth. Just keeping a focus always on teaching our children about the love of God and his plan, you know, just really has, has been super important. And then, like I mentioned before, I learned to talk to God at a really young age about everything. And that's been a huge blessing in my life. And as I've done that and kept that dialogue open, I've just had thousands of experiences 
of little nudges, doors opening, someone recommending a book on parenting or, or mental health or not just in my spiritual life, but in every aspect of my life. I've had these little nudges and little bits of inspiration that have guided me and seen his, his hand. And as I've gone to him and felt his love for me and then been able to look back and to see his hand throughout my life, I mean, my life, is that is my life. Like my life is just a series of decisions that I've made, that I've tried to make over and over again, you know, that testify of his love for me. And I don't know how I could ever deny that. It is me now. You know, that is, it's so intertwined with my life. So almost all those little experiences, those thousands of little experiences have added up to one large growth and testimony over time. Yeah, and a real relationship with him. Yeah. Where he is a real person to me or being to me. You know, he's tangible. What do you think has been the biggest lesson you've learned from that relationship with him? I think that I can trust him and that he'll never leave me. He will always be there for me. Is there a time in your adult life that you have had to really trust in the Lord? Well, yes, countless times every day. But I mean, there have been some themes, you know, things that I've struggled with. I've definitely had to wrestle with forgiveness and forgiving my parents has been something I struggled with for a long time. And when I was a young adult, someone, I don't remember the context of the talk, but there was, I think I have found it since. There was somebody else quoting somebody else, but it was a talk about a, a bishop talking with a woman whose husband had betrayed her. And, and she's like, I don't know how I can ever forgive him. I mean, I want to, I'm willing to, but it just doesn't seem possible. And the bishop said, just leave a place in your heart for forgiveness. And that gave me permission to let the process take its natural course because I just wasn't ready. So I continued to pray to be able to forgive them. And, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this, but when your parents let you down and then you become a parent yourself, it's like you're stung over and over again because you see things and you think, how could they, how could they have done that? So becoming a mother made it even more painful. And then my current relationship with my mom is complicated. So it's not like it's just about forgiving the past. So it's just, you have to keep revisiting it. Probably the last experience I had where I felt like I could really say I had forgiven my dad was, it's a little complicated, but I was in the temple and I was thinking about, you know, have I forgiven him? And my mom always talks about my dad in a way that's like, she kind of justifies his behavior. And she tries to explain to us how he was abused or how he was hurt and how he was hurting. And of course he was. But justification is not forgiveness, right? And what I needed to be able to say was, it's entirely possible that he was just a bad man. And I needed to say that and then be able to forgive him. Mm -hmm. Because the justification process 
was denying the power of forgiveness. It was taking the power away from the Lord and giving it back to my father when really it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he's good or bad, whether he's gonna be cast into outer darkness or, or redeemed somehow. It doesn't matter whether he is or he isn't. My job is to forgive him because the Lord is in charge of his exaltation and it doesn't have anything to do with me. So for me, sort of just like accepting, letting go of that dialogue of trying to understand him and just letting him go and just saying, you know, like, best of luck. That's between you and him, you and God. And I really felt like I could just kind of let that go. And by then he'd been dead for several years. And then the other thing was with that same experience, I could kind of see all these experiences that I'd had as a child and how God had reached through. He'd, he'd reached through the, the situation and he had, and he had shown his love for me, you know, and even like, you know, it's, it is very confusing when you have, because my parents taught me gospel principles that are true. And they, they did a lot. And I mean, the music and the art and the fun and the camping and the Christmas traditions, which are just so over the top that we'd have to go on church welfare the next month, you know, <laughs> but there was, a, there was a lot of fun. There was, it wasn't all bad. And instead of giving them so much credit for that, just giving God credit for that, just not worrying so much about how accountable they are and just knowing that God is accountable and, and, and that he loved me and he took care of me. And, and I have a perfect father in heaven and I have a perfect mother in heaven. Do you feel today that you have forgiven them? I do. I do. Most days, sometimes I call my mom and then I have to start all over again. But, you know, yeah, I do. I think so. I think that forgiveness isn't about trusting someone. It isn't about all that forgiveness is, is trusting God. You say, it's your responsibility, God, and I trust you to handle this person. And it's not my responsibility. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes reconciliation is part of forgiveness, but sometimes it can't be. Is there a specific moment where you feel like you came to that? It was that experience in the temple. And this was, this was 10 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. And it was a lifetime coming to it. A lot of conversations with the Lord and things said in church and things people said, books I read, you know, where I just finally, I was finally able to sort of just say, just to really truly give it to God, give it to the Lord. And how do you think your life has changed before you were able to forgive and then now after you've been able to forgive? How do you feel now? I mean, I think it's just, I definitely feel more peace and I can kind of stop wrestling with that. Focus on my own life more. My current life. Yeah, it seems like that would be very hard to go through and to be constantly reminded and struggle with until you were able to come to that realization and, and be able to forgive. That must have been very hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. So tell me what you think about Rolling Valley Ward. What do you love most about the Rolling Valley Ward? Well, the best part about being really society president has been seeing all the service and just 
the kindness is. You have no idea what people are doing. People are amazing. I hope when I'm done with this, I'm a really good ministering sister because <laughs> now I know I really wasn't that good of a ministering sister because I see what some of you do, what some of these sisters do. I'm just, they're just amazing. I mean, people are just amazing. And, and also, you know, like I said before, like seeing all the struggles that people have. Yeah. And I love this word. I love, uh, it's a super smart word. I love that. I love the sacrament talks. I love teaching Relief Society and all the comments and listening to other Relief Society lessons. I just am like, turn it over to the sisters because they're just so smart. It's just the smartest word. I love it. And I love to like, people here have a pretty good idea of what's culture and tradition and what's doctrine. And it's refreshing. It's nice. So one of the questions that I always like to end with is if you were to talk to somebody who was going to listen to this podcast a hundred years from now, what would you want to say to them? I would say, talk to God about everything. And that there's nothing, no doubt or concern or fear or hope that you need to be ashamed of in front of God. And that you can trust him with everything. So be vulnerable, talk to him about everything. And try to listen and just keep going forward. Well, it's a great message. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really awesome getting to know you, uh, getting to know more about your story. And we're so grateful for your service as Relief Society president. Thank you for what you do for us. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing your stories with us. I can see how it was emotional for you and we appreciate you being vulnerable and, you. and sharing those experiences with us because it, it helps us to not only get to know you, but it helps us to understand more about you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us on uh, the podcast, Rolling Valley Stories podcast today. We'll see you all next time. Mm -hmm.